From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey guys, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is Book Circle Online. Today we have a very special guest in the studio. It's Gail Shee, who of course wrote Passages. Now, Passages spent three years on the bestsellers list, and it's ranked by the Library of Congress as one of the top ten most influential books of our time. Her new book is called Daring My Passages. Thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here, Jeff. Good. Thank you. The book was fascinating. I'm so glad. Yeah. Reading it as a man, how did you feel? <laughs> um, I was shocked the whole time. Who would have guessed that you were at Woodstock and sober? <laughs> <laughs> with my with my much younger daughter, who was just coming out of rehab right. as, as, a, as a speed addict. And the only way I could, you know, rescue her from the clutches of the man who had, you know, got, inculcated her into the drug life was to get away where there were so many people he would never find us. And I heard about this, like, big music event upstate somewhere and I just got in the car until we got lost in the in the zoo and there we were at this the biggest drug festival ever and <laughs> don't sober didn't even have a puff and you were not found though right what you were not found by the ex-boyfriend ex-boyfriend no we were not found by the ex-boyfriend who was out to kill me because he wanted to get back Oof. my sister into his clutches so and that was a pretty daring thing that was well I was surprised that <clears throat> you said that looking back in your life you found the theme daring as yes. the title did you not originally view yourself as daring not really, you know, because I'm a normally fearful person. Oh. I mean, and I've even had a panic attack or two. But what I learned when I, when I was able to read my life as I laid it out after excavating for three years was that when I am fearful, I take a dare to get out of that awful, anxious, isolating uh, feeling that you have when you just can't move forward. Oh. And so I had, I developed a habit of that starting in, in childhood. And I actually, I wanted to be a writer. I was living in a suburb. There wasn't anything interesting to write about, I thought, when I was 10 years old. What did I know? And so my grandmother and I used to listen to a radio show called Grand Central Station, Crossroads of a Million Private Lives. And I thought, I've got to get to Grand Central Station. I have to see those lives and write about them. So my grandmother kept my secret. And I actually got went on the, got, took my bike down to the train, climbed the train. Somebody had to push me up because they were washboard trains with high right. stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, 45 minutes later, I'd be climbing up the stairs to the balcony around the, the great main room and taking notes on you know i'd see a man with a with a big hat borsalino hat and he'd be bumping into a woman who had dark glasses and they'd be like conferring and then they'd move apart and i'd say they've got to be russian spies and then i'd write that down and then i'd see you know a man with a with a no leg and begging you know but then i would dream he was really a trumpet player and he would go home and he'd go out and put a jazz club and play like you know <laughs> <laughs> so you've always been a journalist. <laughs> yeah, so I've always been a journalist. Yeah. I like that you approached uh, this book, your the story of your life, mm -hmm. like a journalist, like getting sources mm -hmm. and fact checking and I did interviewing people. I know I even had to interview people about myself. You right. know? What was I like then? <laughs> really? <laughs> did anything about that they told you surprise you? Oh sure. Oh, the biggest one was my sister. 
I was writing the second chapter. It had to be about my childhood, and I really didn't want to write about my childhood because nothing really exciting happened. Like, you know, I wasn't raped, and, you know, I didn't have a mafia relative. So how could I compete with, you know, really exciting memoirs? I'm so <laughs> sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> so my, uh, I was writing about my father, who was very supportive and went about with my writing, and my grandmother gave me my first typewriter when I was seven. But, um, at the end of the childhood chapter, I sort of tied it up by saying, and then I went off to become a journalist, and my father was very proud. And my sister said, wait a minute, don't you remember, you were more successful than our father. He, All of those magazine articles that you sent him, hundreds of them, all the books you sent him, he never read a word. I was stunned. And then I began to remember other things about the relationship with my father. Wow. Uh, and so th- it was an excavation process. And you know, excavating is painful even when you're doing it in dirt. When you're doing it between your ribs, it's yeah. pretty tough. So was that because you were just more successful, like, period, or because you were a woman? Was it like a feminist thing? Well, I think it was, uh, I think it was both. Uh, he didn't want to grow up like a lot of men. And when he got to middle age, he uh, left my mother and married a, a, a woman younger than I and went off to California to change his life yeah. from New York. And, of course, it didn't work out. And by then, I was quite successful. I was already um, in my 40s. And so he would just come to me like an ATM machine. Yeah, you know, so that's, that's shocking because to me, every parent's dream is to have their child be like double as successful. Well, I guess it takes all kinds. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Why did you write that this book took more patience than other ones? Like, why patience? Oh, well, because you know I would be writing about oh the the classic struggle that so many women, particularly women in their twenties and thirties, have with how to balance your professional life and your career aspirations with your personal life and taking care of young kids and especially if you become a single mother which I did as a result of divorce uh, divorce because my husband wasn't faithful so I had to dare to leave when I was 28 and I had a two and a half year old child so suddenly I'm a single mother responsible for her support and mine right. And when single mothers didn't exist in theory not much no yeah. it was pretty shameful you know to be that so uh and and so I I quit my job at the Herald Tribune where I was writing for Clay Felker, who much later became my husband. It was my dream job, but I wanted to be at home with my toddler. And I thought, well, how can I be a freelance writer? I mean, who's going to take me seriously as a freelance writer in those days? And um, but I knew that if I if I took a job selling housewares at Macy's, um, which is what lots of young women did. I, that little flicker of creativity would probably die, and I couldn't let that happen. So I <clears throat> so began writing at home. I sat down and wrote my first book. It was a novel. I was very proud. It failed. And then I had to say, well, but you learn something about writing. You learn, you know, what the reviews said, why, you know, you won't make that mistake again. So I said the best thing to do is just like when I used to be in diving competition is just dive again. Right. Before you get scared, before you freeze up. So I wrote a second book and a third. And by my fifth book was Passages. That was a big success. Sure. (laughs) Took a lot of practice. (laughs) And speaking of Clay, you broke up with him to write Passages. Did you always know or hope that you'd end up back with him? I did. 
Okay. Oh, yes, and he did, too. Okay. And, you know, but neither of us quite knew that. Um, That's a very modern love story. Then. It was very <laughs> modern, absolutely. No, I was in my mid-30s, and uh, we he wanted me to be his companion every night because he was Mr. New York. He started New York Magazine, the first uh, city magazine in the country. It was enormously exciting. He, so he was out every night at screenings and dinner parties, and, you know, I would have to, I'd come home from writing for his magazine. I'd have to do bed, bath, and books with my daughter, then I'd have to be dressed to the nines to go out with him. How was I ever going to have the concentration to research a, a subject that has never been researched before, which was women's life stages and the passages that they go through and how that's different from men's? Right. I was so obsessed with this subject. I needed, you know, some concentration. And so I picked time with my daughter and time to write the book. And I said, I have to leave. I don't, I love you, but I have to leave you. And it was so touching at one point after we hadn't seen each other for some months he came to one of my readings <laughs> just to say hello sat in the back row this is after passages was published yes okay yes so then after that was published we did get back together and then from the time that time you know we were very solid Okay. The last 10 years of his life, he was sick and you were a caregiver, but you were also writing. I believe you wrote five books in that 10-year period. Is that correct? Yes, but he was also thrilled. What we had done is, uh, in order to combat a lymphoma, one the second right. cancer that he had, the doctor just said, go out and do something wonderful you wouldn't have dared to do before and do it together. I'm not even going to give you any medicine. And that's what we did. We left New York and the publishing world that we'd spent 30 years building our relationships Moved to Northern California. He got, I, he found a job at, um, not a job, but real, he started a magazine making program for young journalists at the University of California, Berkeley. Wow. Uh, and so he had the thrill of shaping this young talent, which is what he always loved to do. Right. And I had a lot of free time to, um, because he, he was not sick. I mean, the lymphoma never came back. So I was able to write five books in those 10 years. Did it feel like a lot? No, I didn't even really? realize that it was that many until I was writing the memoir. You can't imagine how, how little we realize the, you know, the, the, the chapters of our lives until you actually sit down and put it all together. Wow. I mean, I know that you don't do alcohol anymore, but like how much coffee do you drink? Well, I do drink a a bit of coffee. (laughs) Okay. Well, there's at least one reason. (laughs) Yeah. But I I don't drink because I decided at a certain point, either I can think well or drink well. And I think I'd prefer the former. And I love that you wrote, you you don't have to get to rock bottom to realize it. I think that's amazing. No. Well, well, yeah, it was, you know, the, the last couple of years of Clay's life were desperately lonely. Um, when you become a caregiver and at that point, it takes over your life. And so I had to write a book to say, don't let that happen to you. Right. It's really, you have to always preserve your own identity because you're not going to be able to follow your loved one where he or she is going. And if you end up there and you have no identity, you probably won't last very long. So, you know, always keep keep the thing that is your passion alive in whatever way you can. Even if you have to, you know, spend money to have some help to free you every day. You have to go back out into the world of healthy people mm-hmm. and do what you need to do. And for you, that's writing, always. And for me, that was writing. And seeing other people. Okay. You know, yeah, keeping up some social contacts. Very important. Okay. 
Now, Clay's like fingerprints are on so many like major publications still around today. We mentioned New York Magazine, Esquire, Village Voice. Right. Um, he was just creating always. That doesn't really happen anymore. People start like blogs, you know. No, they or, blog. Yeah, there was nobody will come up with the money to start do a right. startup magazine. Are we just like stuck with the publications that we have today? Is Pretty that much. all we'll ever ever have? Pretty much, huh. I hate to say it, because they're because big corporations or conglomerates took over all the means of magazine making. And oh. that's why it's, you know, there are really only a handful of publications that will run long form or new journalism, as we used to call it. Right. Um, really getting in deep into the story and, and using all the techniques of fiction to make it come alive. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking about, like, the movie business. Like, even, like, that small indie film, there's a glimmer of hope that it could, like, go big. But yeah. I don't know how, like, a newspaper could do that anymore. Well, it's going to be a website. It's going to be, yeah. you know, like, you know, Book Circle Online. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. My uh, dad worked, was a publisher for uh, in-flight magazine forever. Oh. And so, a little different, but I saw, like... That was a good magazine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sky Hemispheres. I saw, like, a 200-page magazine go in, like, 10 years to, like, a 60-page magazine. Oh, and no, that's the saddest part. Yeah. Yeah. Just everywhere, print media. Yeah, it's true. And even in newspapers, I mean, they go to two or three days a week, and people don't know what day they are, so they don't have it, you know, they don't... They're not regular newspaper readers. And then a lot of people in your generation, they newspapers, what's that? You know, they don't have to have classes to learn how to turn from one, you know, <laughs> from right to left. <laughs> That's your one big advice They only know how to do this. <laughs> Start at the top of the page. Right. <laughs> I know that the uh, your relationship with Clay was like the heart of the book, but you've also had a lot of amazing friendships, yeah. like lifelong and fleeting even. Yes, uh, with men and women. And particularly in the 70s, which was when I was uh, writing passages, it was women helping other women. I mean, that's how we discovered that we could actually make a difference and change, just change the world, change the relationship between, uh, between men and women. Uh, and <clears throat> we helped, Margaret Mead was my mentor. Yeah. She, you know, excited me to, um, do the kind of daring journalism that she wanted to see in print. And she just said, you know, whenever something really big happens culturally, it's an assassination or it's a, <clears throat> or it's a, a, a racial riot or, um, <clears throat> drop everything, go there, look down into the abyss and you will see your culture turned inside out in a way that's raw. And that's what you want to write about. And actually, many years later, I mean, I did it at that time. I wrote about the Black Panthers and the schism between Middle class black professionals in Yale, in the, in New Haven, and the, and the younger brothers and brothers who were being radicalized by a young, beautiful woman panther and told that if they really had, you know what, they would have to be ready to use the gun for their cause. And so I wrote that book and it was a, it was, it was a great learning experience in, in the kind of controversy it caused when you exposed a schism within a racial group. Different classes. And that was a book? It was a book. Which it was one called was that? Panther Mania. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then years later, I did, you know, when my 9-11 happened, we were all frozen. Anybody who was a writer saying, how can you possibly, you know, contain this incredible, unthinkable uh, event 
in a, in any kind of a story. And I finally, I was fun, I was listening to police radio, and I heard about this one town in New Jersey that had lost so many people. I kept seeing their names, 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 names. They lost the greatest number of people in the World Trade Center Tower. So I made a commitment to go out and spend a year and a half living with them half time and following the process of healing of half a dozen of the families, more than that. Wow. And did that become an article or a book for you? It became a book. Actually, was I think it was the best book I ever read. It was called Middletown America. Oh, one, right. One Town's Passage from Healing to Hope, um, uh, from Trauma to Hope. It was not a very successful book because, as Americans, we don't like to read about our failures. Hmm. You know, once, the, once it's over, we just want to, you know, move on. Unlike the people who were actually affected by losing their loved ones, they, it took, they, it was terrible for them when people would say after two years, okay, so it's a two year anniversary, time to move on. They would still have this horrible hole in their heart. They were just beginning to actually feel all the emotions that go with that kind of traumatic loss. Interesting. Um, I had no idea too that you were the first one to write about Grey Gardens. <laughs> oh, I was. It's so like cemented in pop culture nowadays. I know, isn't it, yeah. Ryan? I never would have thought that. But, um, why did you write that you wish someone had stopped you before you wrote the article? Oh, did I say that? Yes, you did. Stop me before yes, I. Yes, you said you wish someone again? had stopped you before you started writing about Grey Gardens. I I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm still okay. learning about myself. <laughs> so you do not wish you are fine with writing about it. <laughs> I am fine with writing about it <laughs> because that was so shocking to me. <laughs> no, but you know, it was my. It was just we happened to rent a house across the street from Grey Gardens. Yes, nobody knew it was called Grey Gardens. My my little daughter said, you know, you should call it the Witch House, and. <laughs> And she found some kittens that had been abandoned, and since they had a million wild cats roaming around screaming all over their lawn, she said, let's take the, 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 the kittens over to the cat house. So we go over to the cat house, and the next thing you know, there's a woman coming up behind us, and she and my daughter says, because, I mean, the, the porch sagged, the house was in a wreck, you could hear raccoons in the, in the upstairs. She turned around and said, Oh, it must be so nice to live in a house where you never have to clean up. <laughs> and that connected with the childlike, you right. know, That's psyche what she saw. Of, of, of little Edie. And the next thing you know, oh. she takes us into the kitchen and showed us how she sneaked, you know, her mother thought she was bringing her caviar canapes on Ritz crackers. She was bringing her cat food. It was her, you know... Pseudo aggressive way of, right. you know, getting back at mother for criticizing her. So we struck up a friendship and I, every weekend I'd go out and go to the beach with her and she'd be, you know, she'd wrap herself in some, you know, in a skirt and then she'd have a black sinky bathing suit on and she'd go down to the edge of the water and throw herself into the water with a band and she was just, and then dance, you know, like Isadora Duncan. She was an amazing character. Wow. And uh, your article, she said, say whatever you want about me, just don't call me old. That's was right. That? <laughs> oh, God, that would be the worst. That's I was like, right. I can name like 90 things worse. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What do you think about all like the movie and like uh, musical adaptations? I think they were all quite good, actually. Um, I, I actually thought about making a movie uh, about them because they were so fascinating. But, of course, as soon as the Maisels brothers came along, they wanted to act for the men. Oh. Right, they were vamps, of course. Right. Oh wow! So they were must have been thrilled having this article oh, front God. page. Yes, they were. They were delighted, and uh, and little Edie, you know, got her dream for a little while. She was doing cabaret and singing, and you know, a lot of 
especially gay guys would go and really groove with her. And so she had a lot of adulation (laughs) and uh, then finally moved to Florida. Lived a long life, actually. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So she, ah, she was just so like interesting, the characters. Okay. they were them, well, yeah. they, you know, it's like American Gothic. Yeah, you know, and they were they were the oddball. You know, here they were living in East Hampton society. You know, they had memberships available to them at the Maidstone Club, one of the most exclusive clubs in America. And but when Mother would go, she'd wear you know a, a, a kind of a smock dress <laughs> and a cardigan sweater, and she'd sit down at the piano and play herself, and everybody would just be shocked at this woman who just did not have the proper manners to be at the Maidstone Club. And then their last name is was it Kennedy or uh, the Jackie side? Yeah. They're, well, well, this is while they're you know Jack and Jackie Kennedy were in the White House, so there would always be you know I didn't see that because it was later than that, but there used to be a Secret Service cars, a couple of them hidden behind the oh bushes because they were always terrified that one of these women was going to call up and make some outlandish demand that they'd have to agree to because otherwise they would be exposed as wow. having these kooky relatives. You met them at the perfect time. I did. <laughs> I did. Wow. So writing out passages um, has like the seasons, uh, has it helped you like weather the seasons in your life knowing about the like predictable crises? Yes, you- it has. Yes. And I think that was the biggest um, gift of the book was to say, you know, we all go through, we have long, you know, stages where things relatively remain, you know, f- the same. And then out of nowhere, often, we begin, you know, saying, wait a second, this doesn't feel, I don't like this anymore. I don't like this job or I don't like this marriage or, you know, I'm tired of being a mom all the time. I'm going crazy here or I hate, you know, being a corporate guy. I want to, I want to invent my own app. And it usually happens at the same similar ages. It happens with the late twenties, early thirties. For women, it still happens in the mid thirties, you know. If I haven't had a child yet, should I freeze my eggs? Um, if I've had one child, but I might want two or three, do I have to leave my career to do it? I mean, all these things. In the 40s, you know, a man begins to think, is this really my passion or, you know, do I want to do something else? Um, 50s, suddenly today, so many people are put out to pasture early. In the 50s, they're still only halfway through their lives. Right. So what's the next you know, chapter in my life. Where do I go from here? So these predictable passages are normal. They're opportunities for growth, for leaps of creativity. It's only, but it's only possible if you understand that they're normal, they're good, they can help you grow. Yeah, it's okay to feel like that. It's natural. You're going to feel in disequilibrium. You can't quite get your feet on the ground. So you have to let yourself float and explore until you begin to find the way. Right. Don't grab onto the handrails too soon. (laughs) And I read in the 30th anniversary edition that these passages still will happen, just the timeline's more elastic. Is that correct? More elastic, yes. So sure. Uh, And also elongated. I mean, people are taking much longer to grow up. Yeah. I mean, adolescence, forgive me, lasts pretty much until the end of the 20s. Um, And then, uh, and people are taking so much longer to grow old. And so, and the, the lifespan has stretched by 30 years in just since the last century. So what I always say is, let's don't wait until we're old and crotchety to use those 30 years, you know, to live from, you know, 70 to 90 with lots of aches and pains. Use those extra years and 
put them in at other places where you're making a passage and you need more room to feel around. Okay. And the silent passage, menopause. Um, I would say congratulations because people can talk about it fine, freely now. <laughs> you succeeded in the book. Oh, it was terribly funny when I, you know, when I went out, um, Jeff, <clears throat> you know, to, to promote that book at first. And there would be some, uh, noon talk show host on a news program. He never heard, you know, no, from nothing about women's biological functions. And suddenly a producer would put a, you know, sheet of paper in front of him. You're going to be interviewing about what? And so one man said to me from Cleveland, he said, so menopause, is that like, um, is that like, uh, what did he say? Um, impotence? <laughs> and I said, um, no. Uh, let's say baldness. Is that like Alzheimer's? <laughs> and he got the joke. He they said, correlate. <laughs> oh, I, okay. I, okay. So let's start with what is menopause? Okay. And to tell our viewers, this was the 90s. It wasn't a long time no, ago. No, that's right. This, this was really the 90s. recent. That's crazy. That's right. So you wrote about that as kind of like one of the last taboos. It was. What is taboo now? Hardly anything. Okay. Hardly anything. Um, except maybe um, uh, talking about the inner life in a in a in a very honest way there aren't many people who do that especially you know in our entertainment mediums one person who does do it i just heard him the other day on npr richard rodriguez who is a mexican american uh writer poet um journalist and uh he, and 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 gay so he can talk about being raised as a roman catholic and then trying to go out and meet the other Muslims and find where we're related. Where do we go back and, and connect? Because we desperately need to find connections globally now because we're a loose in a world that has become quite chaotic and a lot of very um, frightening, frightened forces that are using extremism to get over their fear. Oh, interesting. And talking about like opening up, you went You've interviewed so many like world leaders, Margaret Thatcher, Bushes, Clintons. Um, you got some really interesting new and new and interesting information out of them. How are you able to do that? Well, because I don't go to them first. I, I go all around them and interview at least 40 people who know them. Know <laughs> okay. Family members, sisters, for first wife or husband, um, colleagues, you know. Uh, and then by the time I go to them, I have some idea of what the theme of their life is, the, their character, okay. the repetitive behaviors that they have. So I kind of present my thesis and then we work through it together. So it becomes collaborative. It's not, you know, confrontational. Right. Oh, that, oh, that's fascinating. So how is it that, I know that you wrote Hillary's Choice about Hillary Clinton, and she wasn't happy with it. Um, how, why is she still talking to you? If not, how does that sound not rude? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. Okay. And I finally learned from one of her... her press secretary when they wouldn't uh, I was writing an article about her and I kept calling for fact checking calling 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 I would never call back and so the book came out and he goes on uh, Larry King live right after I was on with a wonderful interview to trash the book and he comes back to the green room and I said Howard why would you trash the book on making factual errors when you would never answer the phone and he said we don't need you now. 
And it was the, the sign that she had gone into a very arrogant period. She didn't need anybody in the press. And she made the mistake for a long time, I think she's getting over it now, of believing that journalists, especially women, had to be camp followers. They had to be all in as supporters in whatever they did. Oh, they but as a journalist, just, you were unbiased. Well, you have to be, of I mean, course. you're never totally unbiased, right. but you, you know, if you find out something that isn't particularly flattering, but it is illuminating, you write about it. Right. Uh, and then you write about, you know, flattering things when they're, uh, uh, you know, ap- apropos. Um, and she made that mistake for a long time with a lot of editors and, and a lot of writers. As a result, she got a lot of very hostile press particularly in 2008 yeah you know like who's the the arrogant queen who thinks that she just deserves the uh, presidency on a silver platter yeah now reading her and bill's memoirs it makes her like political scent sound very like unplanned and uncrafted but you the way you wrote about it sounds like it was like planned from the start Oh, sure. Um, I can give you two instances. One, um, she wrote some letters from Wellesley to a high school friend, and he gave them to me. They were so illuminating. She had a four-year identity crisis. She was trying to pick her identity. Um, But she told him this marvelous story about how when she was about 10 years old, she used to dance and uh, circle in the sun and imagine that God was beaming down the sunlight on her alone, and heavenly movie cameras were following her every move. Does <laughs> wow. that sound like a star dream? Okay. Something. Yeah. So I dreamt that last night, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, I was Hillary, though. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What was the second story? And the second story was when I, the first time I interviewed Bill Clinton, he was on his campaign plane. It was right, it was 1999, but he was just about to, no, it was, what am I saying, 1991, and he was running for president the first time. Hillary was in a briefing book, you know, being the wonk, you know, absorbing information. He's just playing hearts with his buddies. (laughs) And so I asked him, I said, well, what is this two-for-one presidency? Where does that lead? Is it going to be a Clinton dynasty? And he said, absolutely. He said, eight years of Bill, eight years of Hill. Just like that. Oh, man. Yeah, so, and here they are. Right. They're on the second round. And Hillary is never not in the press. Right. She's a rock star. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, I never thought that she could actually leave him because they're like the two brightest stars in politics, you know? You are so exactly right. What a good insight. <laughs> it's exactly what I said oh, all really? along. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nobody because, else is in her league to date. No, or in his. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, who else could they find? Right. Uh, and when she'd hitched her wagon to his star, she had to, you know, like it took a Hillary to raise a president. It's not dissimilar to how you helped your first husband go through medical school. Well, yeah, but that didn't turn out so well for me. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> he she got the helped, degree and I got the yeah, divorce. She helped Bill through his like early political adolescence. That's right. Yes, she did. Absolutely. And yeah. she saved him when he was about to be impeached. She also, it took a Hillary to save him from, you know, permanent infamy. Yeah. But that was the very point where she had the greatest passage of her life. And it was a very interesting uh, moment in New York. Uh, she had just declared for as her candidacy for Senate from New York. She did a big speech in a ballroom in New York. The cameramen were making fun of her. She went to a dinner party. I was there. And all through the dinner, people were just 
like trying desperately to make small talk because at the same time, Barbara Walters was interviewing Monica Lewinsky. Oh, And wow. people thought it had to have been the worst day of her life. And my thinking was it probably was the best moment of her life because it was the beginning of the passage to her own independence. And she later told me that, that this is the first time, I'm 53 years old, that I feel independent. I can speak with my own voice and make my own decisions, and it feels great. Wow. And this was when while she was running for Senate. Yeah. I always kind of think of the Clintons as like the modern Macbeths. <laughs> like they're not killing anybody, but just like relentless rise of power by their partnership. By their partnership. Maybe they'll star in the revival. <laughs> <laughs> well, the amazing thing is, if you think about it, the Clintons have dominated American democratic politics for 25 years, for a quarter century. Longer even than Eleanor, Frank- Eleanor and Franklin. Wow. That's a long time. It is a long time. And... You know, she's highly qualified, I, I believe. But also, when she loosens up in interviews, she's funny. She's very funny. She's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, kicks back and she has that raucous laugh. Yeah. And um, and she's very warm and, and motherly with her friends, you know. Yeah. But it's a side of herself that she's afraid to show because she's got to be like the commander in chief. Of course. And to Bill, I saw Bill speak at, um, w- during Hillary's initial campaign uh-huh. and he came to the front afterwards just to shake hands with people. And he was just thanking people like, thank you for coming. Yeah. It was like so genuine. And I was like, okay, I'll vote for who you want. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I have to ask, do you think Hillary will run? And do you think she will win? Okay. Um, I just wrote an op- op-ed piece today for the daily news to say, <clears throat> she has a lot of good reasons not to run. You know, she's she can now sleep. She has lots of money. She has a portable uh, bully pulpit. She can raise an issue wherever yeah. she wants, anywhere in the world. Um, why would she put herself through the pillorying of Hillary all over again? Yeah. Uh, who needs that at 68, which, which she'll be in 2014. But on the other hand, when she... Uh, conceded the Democratic primary election in 2008 to Barack Obama. You know, all of her women supporters were just bitterly angry and disappointed. And she lifted everybody up around the world with her speech. And she said, don't spend a minute thinking about what ifs. We have to work together for what still can be. And that promise and that salve to women's disappointments that everybody has was really a rallying cry, and so many women took it to heart. And if she abandoned women and their daughters at this point, a lot of people would really hate her. Oh. And I think she would be very much aware of that. Oh, I never considered that. Yeah. She is um, She is the great hope. And it's very funny. A lot of men will say... Well, do you think <clears throat> do you think we're ready for a woman president? Do you feel that way? No. Okay. That's so weird. It's older men they say okay. that. <laughs> That's and such then a I, weird I feel question. like saying we've been ready for a long time, women. When are you going to be ready? Yeah, <laughs> you know? I don't. I, I don't think about like gender at all. Yeah, so that's your that's that's, <laughs> that's the blessing of your generation. Maybe I think also if she does run, 
we tear apart the past of every candidate and we throw it all in our face. There's nothing about her we don't know. That's true. And it's, it's all old news. I mean, yeah. they just have to go over the same old stuff. Oh, we're going to have to Benghazi again. Right. Monica yeah. wrote the Vanity Fair article, got brought back up. We're like, yeah, we don't care. <laughs> That's right. I know. She got blasted for that. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. interesting. So, and do you think she could win? Oh, yes, I do think she could okay. win. I don't think it's a shoe-in at all, but... Right now, you know, there's nobody on the horizon that looks like they could really measure up to her. I mean, I think it's very likely that Mitt Romney will be the Demo- the Republican candidate. Oh, really? And I don't think it'll be Jeb Bush. I don't think he... Not Chris Christie? No, I think Chris Christie is just, you know... I was very impressed with his apology speech, though, for Were the bridge you? closure. That was very genuine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, he throws his weight around in a way that is really not... Um, He's losing weight, though. For a lot of people. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> He's having right. a syringe <laughs> out, I think. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've never been shy about writing about details of your life. Never to this extent, though. Is it weird to meet someone like me who's read the book and knows such like intimate things about you? Yeah, it sort of is, you know. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just beginning to feel that. Well, oh, I don't know if I want to... Everybody didn't know that. But when I was writing, I had this journalistic thing, which is the same thing that I would do with other people. I'd write about the good stuff. I'd write about the bad stuff, you know? Yeah. And I couldn't hide it. I mean, I would really feel like a fraud. Okay. So um, so I'll just have to live with it. <laughs> okay. And we keep talking about how you always go back to writing. Um, what are you writing now? Well, I'm writing op-eds about, I mean, every day there's another <laughs> thing. More Hillary. Right? You know, or the Hillary's sales rep wants to send me a whole bunch of questions. They're like really deep essay questions and I have to stay up at night after I've made a speech and answer the sales rep's essay questions oh, about no. life. And, you know, but look, they're working for me, so I have to work for them. Okay, good. I hate to ask, but any more books on the horizon? <laughs> well, you know, I have this thing called She He Daring Project. Right, I was going to ask yeah. you about it. And um, I'm excited about that because I would really like to start a movement. I think that, um, you know, we, we tend to think that, oh, well, it's so much easier for young women today. In many ways it is. I mean, you know, well, I mean, they have social media. They have, um, they know that they need to have much more education. They are able with all kinds of assists to postpone children or time their family building and so on. But at the same time, they also came of age, people in your age group, when the economy went off the cliff and jobs have never still quite come back, particularly for young people at entry level. So there's a lot of, um, you know, hanging on, you know, sticking at home with your parents, not paying rent, you know, waiting to launch, taking a lot of internships, not paid, et cetera. And just trying to go in a safe path or going to law school, postponing the time when you actually have to get out and do something. So I want to get, women excited about being more daring because we also have enormous opportunities in in technology in science and math uh certainly in 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 uh, investments um and in apps you know and in media yeah. there are in different kinds of media so the 20s the tryout 20s as i call them are the time to really take those chances fail fail often find out you don't die from it and eventually you put it together. The, you know, the the idea reforms, you get new partners and something works. Yeah. And then it'll be the catch 30, so it's back to it. <laughs> well, catch 30 is when you say, okay, I know that, 
and I know that, and that's not as satisfying as I thought, so now I'm going to make an alteration, or I'm going to throw out what I was did in my 20s, and I'm going to go in a different direction. But it's positive. It's not, it's not you know, negative. But the what I wanted to say is that I'm inviting women to send in their daring stories to this website. Uh, it's made very easy for them. I have lots of stories to stimulate them from young women, older women, women who in their 50s or 60s just say, Phew, I am just going to take, I'm going to get a Harley and I'm going to circle Maine, you know, or I'm going to, you know, go and teach people in Africa, you know, some obscure uh, skill. And then I'll come back and join the Peace Corps. Um, all kinds of um, f- fascinating chances that people take at different at different stages, and it changes their life and gives them a new uh, new lease on life and helps their health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I want to pe- ask people to send in capsules of their daring moments. And and as Senator Kirsten Gillibrand said, it wasn't for her. It wasn't a daring moment to get into politics. It took her a daring decade to try to break in because she didn't start until her 30s. Wow. So sometimes you have to be really patient. Yeah. Uh, but if it's your passion, you know, just and you stay at it, you know, some at some point you'll break through. Oh, my God. What a great thing it's ended on. And that is at shehedaringproject.com? Yes, shehedaringproject.com. Yeah. Great. And, you know, if you send in a good story, I'll post it. And you can tell all your friends, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a daring woman. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. My pleasure. Of course. All right, guys, we'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all of our content at YouTube, iTunes, and of course, bookcircleonline.com. Thanks. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.